We get to start in the Gospel of Mark this year, and I am so excited that we get to spend some time opening up the Word of God and looking at the central figure, Jesus Christ. And today, we are going to focus on one verse, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I memorized it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When I was in high school, I used to go into church and watch our pastor, and I thought, man, how can they talk so long on so little? And I'm going to cut about three hours off of what I really would love to do here today. Uh, There is an outline in the bulletin for you, and so if you want to go to that, um, that is me holding back by a long shot. And so we're going to just dig into the context and set the stage for, for what is a, a long series. We are going to be in this, and we are going to go verse by verse and walk through this amazing gospel. And truth be told, this is not my favorite gospel. In fact, it wasn't my favorite gospel. And many of you probably feel a lot more attachment to something like the book of John who is poetic and powerful in his images and talking about light. Maybe some of you like the Gospel of Luke and how he was a thorough researcher and he thoroughly investigated, like he says in the first couple of verses of his narrative. Or you like Mark or Matthew and he's laying out the genealogy and he's not leaving anything out and he's giving you these sermons. But Mark has taken my heart over the last few weeks and months of studying because he is up to something incredibly good. And so right here in the very beginning, he says, this is the beginning. And we are here, we stand at the beginning of a brand new year, 2018. Not sure what last year was like for all of you, but we come here this morning with some expectation, with some hope. Man, God, would you do something amazing? Would this be the beginning of something new in my life? And so we, we embark on this journey, what Tim Keller calls the beginning here. He says that as Mark is laying this out, this is like the new creation. What went wrong back in Genesis, in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that now Mark is laying out this new creation story, that Jesus is coming, the gospel, the good news, that Christ has come to save humankind. What went wrong in the beginning, Christ is coming, and he wants to make it right. And so I want to just walk through some of this, and and we will be actually walking through just these words that show up in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or some of your versions say Jesus the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And so let's just start in the very beginning. Mark doesn't actually take credit in his gospel as being the author. Uh, In fact, none of the gospel writers do, but Early church history tells us that they are unanimous in their credit to all four of the Gospels. In fact, if you look at the top of the scrolls, it says, Cata Marcus, according to Marcus. And all church history, the early fathers, they are in total agreement. There is no argument about it. And so this is from the hand of John Mark. John being his Hebrew name, Mark being his Roman or his Gentile name. He sits down and he writes this. He is the son of Mary of Jerusalem. We have lots of Marys, but this is Mary of Jerusalem. 
uh, and she shows up a couple of times. Uh, this was most likely, when we read in the book of Acts, Peter is in prison. He's actually chained between two soldiers, and the Spirit of God releases him from prison. He runs out, and it says that he goes to Mark's house. It actually says Mary of Jerusalem. This is where Rhoda, the young girl, she shows up, answers the door. They're all praying that Peter would be released from prison, and then she forgets in her excitement, runs and tells everybody, but never opens the door. And so Mark sh- or Peter shows up, and, and he says, hey, I'm here. And they're what are you doing here? And they said, aren't you guys praying right now that I would be released? Well, this is at Mark's mother's house. It says, Mary of Jerusalem, who was the mother of John, who was also called Mark. Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. We read about this in Colossians chapter 4. They went on some travels together. In fact, Mark also goes on some travels with another guy, an apostle named Paul. But at some point, Mark, he deserts, he leaves. And there's a sharp disagreement that takes place between Paul and Barnabas. And so the two cousins, Barnabas and Mark, they go off to one spot while Paul and Silas go to another spot. And if we were to truly follow through on the rest of the story, you would see that by the end of the story, as Paul is in one of his prison epistles and he's writing, he says, uh, I wish that you would send Mark to me, for he is useful for me in service or in my ministry. And so there is a repairing. But these guys are kind of walking around, but Mark is not necessarily an evangelist. He's not a preacher. What he is known for is he's the guy who is following Peter around as Peter is going from place to place. Um, And so there's some church fathers that are talking about this. There's guys like Papias of Hierapolis. There's Eusebius. And these guys take place. Arrhenius, Clement of Alexandria in the first couple hundred years of church history. But Papias, he says this, Mark, who had been Peter's interpreter... Mark is following Peter around, he's interpreting, wrote down carefully, but not in order, all that he remembered of the Lord's sayings and doings. For he had not heard the Lord or been one of his followers, but later, as I said, one of Peter's. Peter used to adapt his teaching to the occasion without making a systematic arrangement of the Lord's sayings so that Mark was quite justified in writing down some of the things just as he remembered them. For he had one purpose only to leave out nothing that he heard, and to make no misstatement about it. And so Mark is trailing Peter along. He's going from place to place. And as the first generation of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus at work are beginning to die out, and they say that this could have been written anywhere in the late 50s to early 60s before the destruction of the temple, that Mark sits down in Rome and he's writing to the believers in Rome. And, and he starts to write this out. But the context of what's going on in Rome at this time is chaos. In 64 AD, there's a disastrous fire that takes place in Rome. Nero, who is a crazy emperor, most likely was the one who set the fire. It burned almost three quarters of Rome at the time. And so Nero starts to blame the Christians. And because of this, there is great persecution taking place against the Christians in Rome at this time. Tacitus, one of the historians, he says this, listen. The history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. 
Four emperors fell by the sword. In a matter of two years, there were four emperors who were killed. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, often both at the same time. The sea was filled with exiles, its cliffs made foul with the bodies of the dead. Slaves were corrupted against their masters, freedmen against their patrons, and those who had no enemy were crushed by their friends. It's during this time that Christians were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts and then fed and dismembered by dogs. It's during this time in history where Christians were set on fire at night to be served as lamps. If you were a Christian during this time in history, being a Christian, speaking up and saying that you are a follower of Jesus, oftentimes led to your death. And that is the backdrop that Mark is addressing. As Mark is writing this, he's talking about the life and the story of Jesus Christ, saying... There are things that are going on that are taking place in the life of Jesus that you will be able to relate to, and I want you to stand strong. Jesus does battle with Satan. He's accused of even being possessed by Satan. We'll see that in chapter 3 when we get there. Jesus is framed by false witnesses, and he's betrayed by his best friend. And then he's also persecuted, falsely accused, crucified, and he dies. This is the story of what's going on in the early church at the time that Mark is writing this. And so Mark, who's paying attention to Peter, summarizes throughout the 16 chapters, I think maybe the best summary comes from a sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2. And I want you to hear this as a, a summary of everything that will be going on, that we will be taking place, that we'll be going over in the next few months, years, decades. It says this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's the summary, and that is the thrust of what Mark is doing. Now he says the beginning of the gospel. The word gospel here is a Greek term, euangelion. And I want you to hear this because when we hear about this, we've heard gospel. We all say gospel means good news. But I want you to picture that you are part of a community. Maybe you're in a castle that's walled. And you know that the, the, the battle is taking place out there. And you're waiting for your guys to come back. And you stand on top of the wall. And you're looking at the horses of the troops. Your people coming back to the city to give you a report of how the battle went. And you were hoping for gospel. You were hoping for good news. And you can kind of tell the canter of the horses as they're coming up and over the horizon. Are they struggling or are they victorious? And there'd be a messenger that would come and you'd see the people who are coming back and you're hoping for gospel. You are hoping for good news. Bad news is not the gospel. And so Mark is saying this is the beginning of good news. It meant that there was a battle victory. And Jesus' coming represents this good news. He is coming over the horizon. He arrives, and, and now we have this good news. Now, for, for Mark, this gospel is not just the writing here, but this is the all-encompassing story 
of God's act to save humankind. I want you to just understand historically what's going on. Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC. He was starting to get too much power, but before he died, he adopted in his grandnephew, Octavian. Octavian, after Julius' death, he does three things. Number one, he changes, he takes his name, uh, the family name of Caesar. Um, The other thing is he starts to avenge the death of his adopted father, Julius. And so now there's wars, and these wars are going on for, for decades even. And then he also has elaborate public games in honor of Julius Caesar. And during the games, they're having these Olympic-type games. There is a comet that goes throughout the sky, and Octavian says, that is my father. He is ascending to the right hand of Zeus. He is now a god. And if Julius Caesar is a god, then I, as Octavian, I am the son of a god. And so he takes this on. And, and things start to happen. Octavian, he calls himself the son of a god. He finally defeats his main rival, Mark Antony, in the Battle of Actium in 31. And now everybody in Rome is saying he is the bringer of peace. In fact, they had some names for him. Cosmic Savior, the atonement for Rome's past sins, and the inaugurator of the golden age of peace and security. If you go to Turkey, there's a place called Priene. We were there a few years ago, and it says this. And I want you to listen to this gospel as opposed to the gospel that we know of. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus Caesar, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men and sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the good news that have come to men through him. This is written about Octavian. They actually changed their New Year's based on his birthday, and they say that this is the glad tidings. This, he is the savior of the world. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and now Mark is saying, I have some good news also. This is a gospel And guess what? It's not about Rome. It's not about any emperors or worshiping emperors. It's actually about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so this good news that's been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, we have passages like Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings this gospel. In in the Hebrew, it's besora of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So in this series, we are going to be asking this question. Who is Jesus? And why is he the bringer of this gospel? And how controversial this is for Mark to be bringing this up, to say that he, that Jesus is the gospel. And it can't be separated from him. And he came to bring benefits for all, not just the Roman elite. And so this gospel, from the very first verse, Mark is introducing Jesus as the good news for the world. 
and it's not the Roman elite. And this is a surprise to the readers in Rome. The next thing it says is Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know, maybe you don't know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. He is not the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is actually a title. It means the Messiah or the Anointed One. Christos. It was a royal title used throughout the Old Testament to describe divinely appointed kings of Israel. And so the first century audience, and I talked about this about a month ago when we were talking about Mashiach ben Joseph, Mashiach ben David. The expectation of this first century audience is that when the Messiah would come, Rome would be uprooted and thrown out and we would have peace on earth. But Jesus, when he came, Jesus had no decisive military victory. He had spiritual ones. You have historians like Josephus that write far more about John the Baptist than Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, had come and gone, but there was no golden age. In fact, Rome was still on the throne. And about 40 years after Jesus' death, Rome would sack Jerusalem and totally destroy the temple. And so it's kind of hard. It's actually absurd to think that this expected Messiah who was supposed to come and set all things right was actually the Messiah. But Mark paints him as this suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53. And it became easy for the Jews of that day and even the Jews of today to dismiss Jesus as a dismal failure. Even more absurd, Jesus was crucified on a cross like a criminal. And like it says in Deuteronomy and Galatians, it says, cursed is everyone who is hung from a tree. There's this conversation that takes place between Justin the martyr in the second century with a rabbi named Trypho. And they write back and forth to each other. And Justin the martyr is trying to convince this rabbi of Jesus who is the Messiah, the anointed one. And he's going through passages in Daniel. And as he's doing this, the rabbi, Trypho, he writes back and he says this. He writes this to Justin Martyr. He says, Sir, these and such like passages of Scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. For Mark to proclaim Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is incredible. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. It means a scandal. It arouses opposition. And to the Gentiles, it's moronic. It's foolishness. And so expectations are everything. And what the people of that first century were expecting is not necessarily what they got. And then Mark declares Jesus as the Son of God. Contrasting Caesar as God... Mark points all eyes to the true and divine king, Jesus, the Son of God. And as we go through Mark's narrative, 
This term, the Son of God, shows up a few times. In fact, these are all of the times. Look at this. In a couple of weeks, we'll finally get to verse 11, I promise. Jesus is baptized, and God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my Son. Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 9, which we'll get to like in 2023, at the transfiguration, God shows up again and says, this is my beloved Son. But what's also just mind-blowing, and Mark is trying to do something here that's amazing. At the end of the story, at the crucifixion, in chapter 15, Jesus is crucified, and who of all people, there is a Roman centurion, the enemy of the kingdom. And he comes to this startling conclusion that the disciples have been struggling with the entire time. And this Roman centurion, he says, truly, this must be the Son of God. We even have demons, jittery demons that are walking around. They see Jesus show up on the shores, and they say, this is the Son of God. And Jesus says, shh, not yet. But it's amazing that even a Jewish high priest, as he's questioning Jesus, he says, are you truly the son of the blessed one. And Jesus responds and says, I am. We have this pinnacle moment right in the middle of the narrative in chapter 8 where Jesus sits down with his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of God. Peter gets it, but even Peter's thought in that is, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are our Savior. Now let's get rid of Rome and let's start doing this. But when Jesus starts to explain how he would become the promised Messiah, the disciples start turning in disbelief. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this is just a bit of an outline or a sketch of what this looks like. In these first eight chapters, we're going to get these pictures and these stories from the Sea of Galilee. We get to look at the words and the works. Jesus is going to cast out demons. Jesus is going to perform miracles and he's going to heal. And we get this narrative of what the Messiah would do when he would show up. We get Peter's confession right in the middle. And in the third act, as Jesus is on his way, we go from Galilee and we have the travel narrative as he travels down to Jerusalem. We get the story of how he would actually become the promised Messiah. And so I want us to just get a big overall, big glance into this picture of the gospel of Mark. And as you think about this and as you take this in, to start to think about it, who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Let's check this out. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. 
Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic king. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together, and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized, and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people, and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account. It's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic king, and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant, or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's going to let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is. But it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them. And every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book, where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the Son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No. So on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away, and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid. And that's how the book ends. 
Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? There is a truth older than the ages. There is a promise of things yet to come. And there is one born for our salvation, Jesus. There is a light that overwhelms the darkness. There is a kingdom that forever reigns. There is freedom from the chains that bind us. Jesus, Jesus, who walks on the water, who speaks to the sea, who stands in the fire beside me. He rolls like a lion. Like a lion, you play as a lamb. 
of Jesus Christ. There is no one like Jesus. Who is like our God? There is no one like our God and there is no one like our King. And so if that is the beginning, the video suggests that we just saw, and it's not just the video, it's actually here in Scripture, that the ending to this story is unique because the ending is actually a beginning. If you look at the back of the book, Mark chapter 16, verse 8, is probably not where your gospel story ends. It actually goes 9 through 20, but where it probably most likely ended, where Mark wanted it to end, was in verse 8. And later on, there was probably adaptions to the story because we want everything to be wrapped up in a nice neat package. But Mark as a brilliant storyteller is doing something different. And I think it's important for us at the beginning to stop and look at the ending. Jesus is crucified and we have some women who are coming to the tomb. They see the angel in the tomb and then the story closes with this. They went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Is that the end of the story? I believe that when Mark sat down to write this narrative, this good news, that he's trying to identify with you and with me. This is not a good ending. This is failure. This is fear. This is denial. But Mark is setting us up because he's saying that the story can't end when the women go up and they tell everybody. The story can't end when the disciples are reunited with Jesus up in Galilee sometime later that this is not a closed book, but that your life and my life is the latest chapter to this gospel story, the good news that is making its way out still today. And so the ending is really an invitation to the beginning, that God is a God of beginnings. And what he is inviting us to is he is inviting us to come and die. That there is indeed life on the other side of death. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He came and died so he would know and that you and I would know that there is life on the other side. In Mark chapter 8, says, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
for my sake and the gospel's sake, we'll save it. And so the question that we sit here with today on January 7th, 2018, the beginning of a new year is how will you and I and how will we as a community of Christ followers at Calvary Church, how will we continue the story? And the beauty of this story is that even disobedient disciples who abandon Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who deny him with curses and are even muzzled by fear, that you and I can find forgiveness and the chance to begin again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So for us, what is it in this year that you need to come and die to? Do you need to die to the sin in your life, the addiction, some of the relationships, some of the pride? There's an amazing author, his name is Gerald Sitzer, and he wrote a book that's probably in my top five called Grace Disguised. Gerald Sitzer writes out of the pain of his story that he was in a car accident. He's driving the car and a drunk driver hits his car and in one accident he loses three generations of women in his family. His mom was in the car, his wife was in the car, and his young daughter was in the car. And the story of a grace disguised is one of his recovery and the death to himself, but working through the death of his family and the pain that he's going through. And he talks about this recurring nightmare that he is standing in this field and he's chasing the setting sun in the West. And as he's chasing, trying to stay in the light, he turns around and he sees this huge storm cloud coming from the East. And he is simply trying to stay in the light, but he can't because this storm is coming faster than he's able to move. And he comes to the realization that if I am going to find the light, that I need to turn around. <laughs> I need to enter head on in to that storm and I will find the sun as it comes up on the horizon on the other side. And so for you, maybe as you are trying to stay in the light and chase the setting sun, I don't know what that storm or that cloud has been for you in 2017 and maybe in the first week of 2018, everything has changed and that cloud is there again. The invitation to come and die, that we would turn around and not by ourselves and not in our own power, but through the power of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he would go through that with you and with I. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? I pray that as we are in this series, that this question and the resulting answer of how you do this, this year, everything would change that you would follow him for whatever that means. And so 
We're going to start this year off by taking communion. That we are going to remember Jesus with the bread and with the cup. And as the ushers are coming forward, I just want to set this up. That this would be a holy moment for us as a community, but this is also business time between you and the Lord. That you may have been a disobedient disciple. That you have abandoned Jesus in this last year. And Jesus came and he suffered as the suffering servant so that he could be your Messiah, the anointed one. And so as the elements are distributed, as we take the bread, just remember his body. Do you remember this and remember that it was for you, for the good news in your life? Let me pray us into that. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Not an easy one for sure but that we can have life even after death. God, would you show us this morning what that means in our life? As Mark is writing to persecuted followers in Rome and they're going through their own trials and persecution and troubles, that maybe some of these things have been highlighted for us this morning. Would you tell us this morning that The ending is the invitation to the beginning, that we this morning are called to come and die, and so we remember your death. Would you meet us here right now?